What a great day to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? Just to be able to share His goodness and His grace and sing praises to Him and be able to pray together for the ministries that God has given us this summer. We are in the midst of a series of messages walking through the book of Romans. We start the second chapter today. And in a few weeks, I'm going on my own mission trip. I'm heading to Moldova for the summer and uh, for a week over there. And um, I'm going to be teaching in a camp. It's the it's first time they've ever done this, and I would love for you to pray for me as I go. It's a camp uh, geared towards Christian young people, ages 16 to 24, uh, teaching them the Christian worldview, exposing false worldviews out there. And it's a class that I teach over there to the seminary and um, condensing it for this camp. And, um, you know, as I review that material, and I teach six uh, worldviews. I teach not only Christianity, but I teach the false worldviews of Islam and postmodernism and humanism and Marxism and the New Age and present the way in which the culture presents these worldviews and how they seep into belief systems without people really recognizing that. And uh, I look at their ideologies and their perspectives, even... I would call them religious viewpoints of these other views. And um, I'm always amazed, and again amazed, uh, at how people can get led down a path to believe in things such as these ideologies. The reason I, I, I'm amazed is that they just don't correspond to the reality that we all know. Uh, they have to make these huge leaps of assumption in order to get to where they arrive at with having no basis in truth. I begin to think about that and begin to think about how do they get going down this path? Well, the only conclusion that I can come up with is that they begin to make, they try to make sense of the world, they try to make sense of God, they try to come up with a plan of redemption or what makes man good or how man is good, and they answer all these big questions, but there's only one one thing that is excluded from consideration, you can't bring God into the conversation. Can you imagine explaining the world without God? Can you, explain, can you imagine explaining the nature of man without God and what he says? Can you imagine explaining the nature of origin, how we all came to be without God? And You look at the wealth of evidence, you look at all the mounds of evidence and you say, well, I can't consider God, even though it all points there, I can't consider him. You can come up with all kinds of really acts wild assumptions and wild viewpoints that uh, have no real basis in fact and truth. You know, as we've walked through these first few chapters in Romans, it's, it's not a pretty picture. I mean, there's been uh, the last half of Romans 1 explains all these 22 or so sins that happen in a godless world, and now we're going to look at something else today which is equally as bad and and I began to put the two together, and I think, God, you're saying to me that uh, really the explanation of the faith, Christianity, uh, is actually uh, helping us understand that it's congruent with what we already know to be true. We already know that mankind has a propensity towards evil. All we have to do is look at human history. Uh, have we seen societies implode morally because they've turned their back on God? Have we seen societies who thought they could create a perfect world just disintegrate one day because they realize that all they're doing is bringing about poverty and misery upon their people. There's something about the ways of God that just become very exposed to us. In the first chapter, those 22 sins that explode in this self, selfish, godless society, it just 
destroys them, erodes them from within. People become all hedonistic. They want to please themselves. They become arrogant, boastful. They want to promote themselves. And they become sexually promiscuous and pleasure themselves. Is any of that going on in the American culture today? And so Paul, in the presentation of his argument here, He's saying in, in, in Acts 1, these people need the gospel. Look at all this sin. Look at all this destruction of personal lives. And I'm sure as he's going through that first chapter, writing it and listing out all those things, and he's probably thinking of the people who are going to be reading this letter, perhaps Jewish people, but uh, it's people who want to read things like this. They're, well, don't be upset if I say this, but chapter 2 is for church people. Chapter 2 is for all those people who hear chapter 1 and go, that's right, Paul, let them have it. They are sinful. They're doing terrible things. Bring it on. And so here's chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. We know this. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress. For every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek or the Gentile or the non-Jew. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. I'm grateful there's no partiality with God. The word judge in this context is to, um, it's not just to be the judge, it's to be The entire courtroom scene. (laughs) It's to be the person who hears the argument and makes a judgment. uh, Pronounces the sentence and carries out the punishment. And here is what the passage says to about people who set themselves up as the judges of others sinful behavior. Point one, judgmental people are as guilty as those they judge. Amen? Judgmental people are as guilty as those they judge. And the reason is plain in the Scripture. It's because they've sinned just the same, whether they admit it or not. And I want you to know, these are very, very hard people to reach with the gospel. Why is that? Why are people who have set themselves up as judges of other people, why, are they, why is it hard to reach them with the purity of the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ? It's because they believe they're just fine. In fact, they wish you were like them. 
And I, I think that's why Paul uses such harsh, direct, forceful language, getting their attention. No, you're just as, you're just as needy as the, the wayward sinner. You, you older brothers are just as needy as those younger prodigals. They think they're good because they act good, or at least better than the blatant sinner. But invariably, they become people who judge. Cast condemnation. Now, there's, there's a lot of things that I would love to be able to just pronounce and they'd be gone from the church. But judgment, judgmental people is one of those things that judgment uh, that resides in the heart of the legalist. I just wish that it was gone from the church, don't you? <laughs> I just wish that the church was a place of, 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 of truth, of grace, of healing. And, and people, I think, are ready in our culture today to hear the truth if it's delivered and contexted in grace and understanding and the journey that we're all on. And I'm just a sinner as you are, and I've just come to know the grace of Jesus Christ, and it's radically changed my life, and I want to introduce you to this wonderful... Loving God. My purpose is not to get you to straighten up. That's not my job. It's Jesus will do his thing in your life. I'm afraid we have a lot of self-appointed relational judges in our day, wouldn't you say? You ever met one? Now, you won't find one in this church, but you might have found one somewhere else. You know, there's there people who see someone doing something they think is wrong, and in their mind... Uh, they try them in a court of law in their mind on the spot, find them guilty, and begin to dish out relational punishment. <laughs> you ever known somebody like that? What you did is wrong, and I'm going to make you pay for it. Sometimes it's a silent treatment. Sometimes it's, yeah, you deserved it in their mind. You know, the person living in sin in Romans 1, doing all those terrible things, is simply saying, I'm going to be my own God. I want to do what I want to do. And what Paul's argument here is that the moralist who judges people is simply doing the same thing. I'm going to be God in this situation. I'm going to say what's right, what's wrong. And both are all about themselves and both are equally lost. Both are equally needy of the gospel of God's grace through Christ Jesus. Without God and his saving grace, you're going to have a tendency to participate in one or the other. You're either going to go down the road of self-pleasure and just doing whatever it is that you want to do, seeking happiness, or you're going to straighten up and you're going to try to be good so God will applaud and you're going to condemn all of those bad people. Which one are you more prone to be? Paul's making the case here that people who think they're earning God's favor through righteous behavior... Well, you're going to be judged by that righteous behavior. If that's your plan of justification, okay, let's go with that plan. How many of you are righteous in and of yourself? How many of you have righteous flesh, in other words? Because you're going to be judged on that if that's your system of justification. And, you know, righteousness is an all or nothing proposition. Can you be 80% righteous? No. You're either righteous or you're not. And so if you're going with the self-justification, you better be completely perfect, never having sinned. We all know that's not us. We all need God's grace. His imparted righteousness to us. 
Verse 4, Paul exhorts the moralist. He says, repent. Stop depending on self-righteousness. And, and, and there's just a window of time, he's saying here. There's coming a time where it's going to be too late. And you're going to think all along that you were doing the right thing. You were going to think all along that you were serving in the right way. But I never knew you. I didn't, you never came to me. You never knew me. Look what it says in verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Look at the three ways he describes God. Kindness. This is, this is the word for good uh, in the Greek that uh, is about kind acts towards one another. There's a lot of things that are good acts that may not be kind. Some people would say Jesus driving the... the the den of thieves out of the temple was a good thing, but it wasn't a kind thing. So this is the actual kindness, gentleness, the expression of one's benevolence towards another. Tolerance or forbearance. Interesting word because it means truce. It's not a peace treaty. It's a truce. A, we're going to stop shooting, you stop shooting for a period of time. And God's forbearance is, for a period of time, I'm going to withhold my wrath. I'm not going to pour out my wrath on you. I'm giving you time. His forbearance, his patience. This is indicative of a person who, who could take action but chooses not to. They're patient, long-suffering, but it's for a period of time. In the passage, once the self-righteous moralist, the judger, to realize that time is now and these things from God, about God, ought to lead you to a point of falling before him and saying, Lord God, I turn from that. I turn from that attitude. I turn from that way. Come and fill me with your, your presence so that I may not walk that way anymore. I want to walk the opposite. The passage says the only proper response is repentance. Explain it this way, you know, uh, say a son goes out and does something despicable that his parents are just embarrassed about, and it's a, it's a great sin, and oh, people in the church find out, oh, it's just a terrible thing, and uh, he comes and he just falls before his parents in a heap, and he just is so repentant, and, and they uh, extend mercy to him, and they tell him, you're just completely forgiven, it's as if it never happened, let's just move forward, and it's over. Now, the son can really react in one of two ways, can he? The son could come to the term and say, you know, mercy is absolutely wonderful. I did this terrible thing. I know I deserved punishment and they forgave me. They had mercy on me. And he could react with this thought. You know, mercy is so great that if I got it once, I could probably get it again. And he goes back and he says, I'm going to go and kind of do the same thing because it didn't have any ramifications before, mercy worked, I want mercy to work again. Does he really understand the depth to which he's been forgiven? Or he could, he could say, you know, I understand what's happened. I understand the overwhelming undeservedness that I had and my parents just lavished mercy upon me and I saw the pain that it caused them. I saw what it did to their heart and I'm going to let mercy 
I'm going to let mercy work its way into my heart to shield me from that behavior. I'm going to drink in the love and mercy of my parents or we as Christians of God. I'm going to always remember what if I've been forgiven of. That's the, one of the great cures of moralism. <laughs> Judgmentalism. There's another aspect of this that um, I think grips a lot of Christians, to be honest. It's, let's say you sin and you feel horrible about it and you come to God and you just pray and you just, oh, you said something, you did something. It's just, it's so not you, it's so wrong and You come to God and you say, I repent of my sin. I'm so sorry for what I did. And you say this famous line. And God, I promise that I will never, ever, what? Do that. Anybody ever prayed that prayer? Well, anybody ever had success with that prayer? That's the question. You know, you might have been away from God for a while. And you've been living in a way you ought not to have lived and There's worldliness and sinful things. And one day you come to your senses and you decide, I'm going to start living right. This is, look where this has got me. So you come back to God and you start living the way that you want to. And here's what a lot of people have been taught to do. And what a lot of people have done is they'll come before and they'll say, God, I'm rededicating my life to you. I'm going to try this again. And in, in some ways, I'm not saying this is blanket all the time, but in many times, those cases, what a person is doing is saying, I'm rededicating my flesh to try to be godly and holy. Does that make sense? It failed before, and I went off into sin, and I did things I shouldn't do, but I'm coming back to you, and I'm going to try harder this time. I'm going to be good. I'm rededicating my flesh They don't use that exact word. The passage says that God is withholding wrath, withholding his, ju- his judgment so you can repent, not so you can try harder. The point is this, God desires repentance, not rededicated self-efforts. Does that make sense? He, he doesn't. He doesn't any longer want to see what your flesh can do. He wants to see what his spirit can do in you. <laughs> and this repentance is, is it's leaving. It's letting go. It's walking away. It's this change of mind. It's I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not living that way. I'm not paying attention to that. I'm coming to him. I'm paying attention to him. And it's not a one-time thing you do with God. There are many times in our life, in our spiritual journey, where we're either distracted or we get led down a path or we begin to develop a sense of, um, I'm special, (laughs) people ought to listen to me, and uh, some days we just got to wake up and come to our senses and say, this is not godly, this is not right, this is not Jesus in me, this is me. And I'm leaving that, I'm walking away, I'm turning away from that. Whatever your temptation is, Hebrews 12.1, lay aside the, the sin that so easily entangles you. Whatever that is for you, God's mercy, his patience, his forbearance, his kindness for you is giving you opportunity to repent, turn to him. 
And verse 5 says that the heart that will not turn away from sin and unto God is stubborn, unrepentant, subject to wrath. Verse 6 quotes an Old Testament verse. It says God will render to each person according to his deeds. And there's going to be glory and honor and immortality and eternal life for those who persevere in doing good. Those who are selfish or disobedient to what is true, there's going to be wrath and indignation and tribulation and distress. Which one do you want? (laughs) It's just pretty black and white. There's something that if you just, you don't understand the biblical context for what Paul is saying, you can get led down a wrong path with those verses I just quoted. Let me explain. Jesus one day is on a road and he's encountered by a, a rich young guy. You know the story? And the rich young ruler comes to him and says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Do you remember what Jesus says in response? Do you really remember what he says in response? How does he start his response is what I'm after today. Because the immediate thought that I would have is he says, go and sell all that you have and, you will in, and that'll be good and you'll inherit eternal life. But he makes a comment before he says that. It's a striking comment coming from the Christ. He says this to the rich young ruler. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why do you call me good? No human being that's ever walked this planet is good. Only God is good. In in Romans 3, Paul, the next chapter over, Romans 3.10, Paul makes the same statement. He says, none is good. None is righteous. Not even one. You think of the implications of that statement. No one is good except God alone. That means I'm not good. (laughs) And then I go back to Romans 2. How can I avoid the coming wrath by being good if I'm not good? It says, you're going to be judged by the things you do and the things you do. If you're not good, you're not doing good things. And and I have to come to the term, I have to come to terms with the fact that only God is good. And so if there's goodness in me, it's going to have to be imparted from him. If there's going to be works through me that are good and fruitful, it's going to have to be him doing them in me. I'm as dependent on him for good works as Jesus himself was. John 14, 10, Jesus says, the words that I'm saying to you, I do not speak of my own initiative. It's my father abiding in me who's doing the work. And when I begin to understand that I don't have the capability of good. Then I have to open myself to the receiving of good. And when I fail or when I sin, there was me again, I'm going to come back and receive good from him. And I begin to understand scriptures. I begin to process things differently. John 15, 4 and 5. Look what it says. Jesus is talking to those that want to follow him. Abide in me and I in you. The branch can't bear fruit in and of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I have no ability for good. He has all ability for good. I have to be connected or I'm not going to be good. And then there's wrath and distress and condemnation. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Let's get that straight. He who abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. There's an automatic response of fruit bearing. And apart from me, you can do okay, right? 
Is that what it says? No, you can't do anything. Again, you don't have the capability of good. And I get it. I begin to get that, and I begin to understand the need that I have. And good works coming through my life are not my own doing. I can't take credit for them. They're not me. And Romans 2, 6, where it says, God will judge each person according to their deeds, it's because your deeds reveal what's in your heart. It reveals who you are. And I've come to this conclusion in my life. This is my last point. Only Jesus can do good works. (laughs) I'm incapable of it. Only Jesus can do good works. Don't think that by going to church or abstaining from sinful practices or participating in some ministry or even reading your Bible every day has given you some kind of... Favor with God. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of your attempts to do righteous things are nothing but filthy rags. You need God. You need Jesus. He's the only one capable of goodness. You know, as I prepared this sermon this week, I kept thinking about how I would have processed this passage in my younger days. Because when I was, my personality is, is that I want to do the right thing. I was a good kid. I didn't disappoint my parents too much. <laughs> wanted people to be happy with me. Wanted to make good grades. Surely didn't want to disappoint God. And I would have read this passage that God is going to judge me by my deeds. And that's all I would have needed to hear. And I would have been scared out of my mind. Because I knew my deeds. I just knew that I'm going to hell. <laughs> That's it. Case decided. You're going to be judged by your deeds. Romans 2.6. My deeds are bad. And so what would I do? I don't want that. So I need to straighten up. And so I'd have a few good weeks. I would be reading my Bible every day. I'd be praying regularly. And actually, I was pretty proud of my spiritual performance. And I might read this scripture that I'll be judged by my deeds and just think to myself, man, if Jesus came back right now, I'm a shoe in But then you know what happens. I can't sustain it, right? And so it's not very long before I'm back in the I'm going to hell crowd. But my testimony is this. One day Jesus got me off the roller coaster. <laughs> One day I encountered grace. He poured out this unconditional acceptance upon me. Even though I was raised in the church and went to church all the time, read my Bible, did everything I could to be good and There came a part in time where I just became smitten with Jesus. Ever been there? (laughs) He's he's, he's captured my attention and my adoration and my devotion and my worship. The Christian experience no longer became about me and how I was doing. It just became about him and how much he loves me. Is that where you're at today? None of us has any hope without him. And maybe you're here today and... uh, there are some things in your life. That there's some addiction or there's some behaviors and you just, you've tried hard and you just can't get through it and you just always fall and you sin and you feel like a failure, you feel terrible. And 
My question to you is, how well do you know Jesus? I meet people all the time, and they're trying to overcome something in their life, or they're trying to get rid of resentment, or they're trying to get rid of bitterness towards somebody, or unforgiveness towards somebody, or this behavior problem. And I meet them all the time, and they say, well, how well do you know Jesus? And we've grown up a cultural response, and the church is so tragic, and it's this, well, I'm a Christian. I guess I know him pretty well. I go to church. I've been going to church a long time. I go to a life group. I participate in the discussion. I'm pretty knowledgeable about the Bible. I read it whenever I can. I guess I know Jesus pretty well. Well, you haven't told me anything that gives me a clue that you know Jesus. Amen. How well do you know Jesus? Because when he begins to lavishly pour out his grace, and you begin to understand how much he cares for you, how much he loves you, you become smitten with him. And it's, it's all over then. It's all over. Just love him. Temptation is just, you couldn't do that to Jesus. I love him. The woundedness begins to heal and... You know, only Jesus can love your spouse through you the way they need to be loved. You need to let him. Only Jesus can bring fruit to your ministry. Only Jesus can can bring freedom. Freedom. Pray. Father God, I'm so grateful for the provision that you have made for us. Your only son, Jesus, would come to our world. That he would become one of us. Would walk our streets and breathe our air and eat our food. and Would show us God in human form. I'm so thankful, Father, for the provision that came on a mission. To die on the cross. To, to pay this penalty for sin sin that I have committed, the sin that's a part of my life. He, he paid the price. He, he took the punishment. He says that sin must be punished, but he'll take it for me. And I'm so grateful today for the gift of the redemption offered through Christ Jesus. I'm thankful today, Father, for the power of the resurrection. That once he paid the price that he was resurrected from that tomb and he lives today to give life to, to me, give life to each one of us, that we may be able to be freed from those, those, those sinful ways, but also those judgmental ways and all the ways in which humans just so fail over and over and over that Christ came and he has set us free. And Father, I pray that uh, each and every person here today would know what it means to be free. What it means to just be smitten in love with you. To know what it means to spend those quiet moments with you that are so real. The presence of you is so heavy upon us and so real to us that we know this is heaven. This is heaven that has come in this little capsule to me on this planet. Oh, Father, I just pray for a fresh awareness of the life of Christ in us. I pray, Father, for those that may be trapped today in the 
spirit of moralism that may be here today. I just pray, Father God, that uh, this scripture speaks to them. Understand the time is short. So much they're missing. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.